Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Faith. And friends, the Lord be with you. You know, in an age when many are talking about the de-churching of the church in America, in an age when many are choosing not to affiliate, not to congregate, you have chosen to gather this morning. You have chosen to join us online. And we're grateful that you're here. And may God bless you for your, your, your intentionality in gathering as a people of God in, a ch- in an age like ours. I'd like for you to take out that Bible that's in front of you and turn to page 844. Maybe you already brought your own Bible, and that's great. And for those of you watching online, we're, we're going into the book of Luke. So if you're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, the third book in the New Testament, and I want you to go to the chapter and the verses that Faith just read, and the more we see it, hopefully it will become clearer for us 
and we will act on the words of Jesus. And so if you would then join me in prayer, let us lift up our hearts to the Lord. Oh God, we claim the promise that you gave to us, that you sent the Holy Spirit into the world to lead us into all truth. We, Lord, pray that you would open our eyes that we would see, you would open our ears that we would hear, and Lord, most of all, you would move us at the deepest place of our will so that we will act. This we pray in Christ's name, amen. I cannot definitively prove this, but I would imagine that the scriptures that we read last Sunday from Matthew chapter 7 about judging and the scripture we will read in a few weeks in Luke 15 about the lost coin and the lost, the lost sheep and the lost son and this scripture that we read just now I think represents some of the most famous, well-known passages that Jesus taught. And whether you are in a Christian gathering or you are part of non-Christian communities, people know the Good Samaritan story. They may not know where to find it. They may not even know that it's in the Bible, but they just know the story. People without any affinity to the church have adopted this, this mantle, this model of the Good Samaritan by responding to people in need. And chances are you've either been on the receiving end of a Good Samaritan or you have been a Good Samaritan to someone in need. Luke tells us that a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Now when you really look at that word test, it's not a pretty word. It denotes this attempt to entrap someone. Don't you hate it when somebody comes with an ulterior motive to try to get you into trouble? And the lawyer now is trying to manipulate Jesus, hoping to use his words at a later point against him. Now when you read the word lawyer, I don't want you to think lawyer as in the American Bar Association lawyer. I want you to think about a legal scholar, somebody who is knowledgeable in God's law. He was a religious leader, knowledgeable about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. This was his area of expertise. And then I want you to look at his question. He stood up to test Jesus and he asked a very peculiar question, teacher, what must I do and I underline those two words, I and do. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you think his question was genuine? I don't think so. Do you think he was a seeker, genuinely wanting to know the pathway to eternal life? I don't think so. It appears to me again that this is part of his design to entrap Jesus. And it's a very odd question, don't you think so? It's a very odd question to ask. Because what does anyone do in order to inherit something? You have to be born into the right family and the right circumstances. So even though my name is, my name is Hilton, and if I showed up at the home of the family members of the great 
Conrad Hilton, the founder of the vast chains, the global chain of Hilton Hotels. And I said, what must I do to inherit some of the wealth? They would immediately call the police. My Hilton has a Y, and their Hilton has an I, and that's just one of a thousand of thousands of reasons why I do not stand to inherit anything from them. So again, think about the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's odd, because normally to inherit anything you really don't have to do anything to inherit it. But one thing is clear in the gospel, and it's this. You don't have to do anything to inherit eternal life. Eternal life is not something to earn. It's a gift to receive. And there are lots and lots of people who think, I have to do something. I have to give blood. I have to jump through this hoop. I have to prove and, and demonstrate that I'm good enough to inherit eternal life. And if that's what this lawyer means, then friends, he has missed the mark. Jesus, do you notice, doesn't answer his question. Instead, Jesus, as he often does, he responds with a question. And in this case, he responded with two counter questions. And you'll see... In Luke 10 and verse 26, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What do you read there? In other words, I think Jesus is asking, what is, what is your scholarly assessment? And without missing a beat, this man, and I imagine if you went to his house at three in the morning and knocked on the door and said, what does the law read? Chances are he would just reel this off in his, from, from his vast knowledge. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God. And notice just the breath of that love. You love God with all of your heart. You love God with all of your soul. And you love God with all of your might. And then he added from Leviticus 19 and verse 8, and I want to show you 18, I want to show you the whole verse where Moses, as he taught the people, said, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people. And this is the line that the lawyer used from that verse. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And this, Jesus says in another place, this sums up the whole law of God. Everything hangs on loving God and loving people. And if you're here this morning and you're investigating Christianity, you're wondering, what do I do? How do I live out the Christian faith? It is that simple and it is that complicated. Love God and love people. I think it's important to note here that Jesus is also not saying this is the way to become a Christian. What Jesus is really saying to this guy is, look, you do this. Love God completely love your neighbor completely, and you have met the standard. You have fulfilled the law perfectly, and you don't need grace. You're perfect, so go ahead. Do this and live. That's what Jesus is saying to the man. And that should have ended the conversation, and they should have moved on. But the lawyer is now 
squirming. And you say, well, Pastor, why is he squirming? He's squirming maybe because his wife is in the crowd. Maybe he's squirming because his children know the story on their dad. Maybe he's squirming because his co-workers happened to show up that day. People from the neighborhood were there. And everyone knows the holes in this man's life. That he has a private life, he has a public life, and the two don't speak to each other. He's every bit imperfect. He's far from the standards that he so flawlessly recited from memory. And based on Jesus' answer, it appears that the lawyer knows that including himself, no one on planet Earth is loving God perfectly. No one on planet Earth is loving his or her neighbor completely. That we're all struggling with this business of loving God. There are these things called idols, 21st century idols, that rival and complete and many times undermine our quest to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, yes, this man is squirming because he's not loving his neighbor all the time. Maybe some of the time, but not all the time. And so his quick legal mind pushes back with another question. And Luke says it was an effort to do what? To justify himself. And so he asks this question, who is my neighbor? Take that, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Let's just pause for a moment and quickly consider the word justify. Because what Presbyterian Christians believe is that justification is God's domain. Justification is something that God does not on the basis of our merit, but on the basis of the merits of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took our sin, he took our guilt, and so the righteousness and the justification that we have right now, it's not something we earned. It's a gift from God paid through the death of Jesus on the cross. And on that basis, God justifies us. He justifies the ungodly. He justifies the sinner. But this man is not talking about divine justification. He's talking about self justification. He wants to make himself look good in the eyes of all the people who are there. He wants to, he wants to show that if, if, if only Jesus were talking about the kind of neighbor that I want him to talk about, then I'm going to be okay. I've always believed that one of the biggest barriers to people fully giving themselves over to Christ, it's because of this very issue, the issue of pride. And the way pride works, it's the biggest sin. It's the gateway to every sin in the Bible, and that is pride. What pride does, it makes us want to look like respectable Presbyterian Christians. And we dare not admit that we have problems. We dare not admit that we have a need for Jesus. We want to appear as opposed to be. And what self-justification does, it is a temporary salve. Do you hear me? It is a temporary salve. Because when we do things right in certain moments, we feel good about ourselves. And generally, we should feel good about ourselves. But it doesn't solve the great, great need that's inside each of us. And we end up many times saying, you know, God is really lucky to have people like us. And that's the danger of self-justification. 
So the neighbor, the, the lawyer is asking, who is my neighbor? And you know what he's hoping for? He is hoping that Jesus will say, well, your neighbor is your best friend from Torah school, from law school. And this lawyer and this person gets along really well. And if indeed it's people like his best friend that Jesus is describing as a neighbor, then he's going to be okay. But Jesus doesn't fall for that. Jesus instead tells him a story and concludes the story with one final question. And you know the story very, very well. A man is on his way from Jerusalem, traveling 17 miles down to rugged terrain to get to Jericho. And on that road, a road that is famous for all kinds of criminal activity, this man was mugged, he was beaten, he was stripped, he was bloodied, he was left unconscious by the side of the road. And it just so happens that a priest is going by and the priest sees the man. And I want you to focus in on that word. He sees the man. The man is beaten, the man is blooded, but what does the priest do? He crosses over to the other side of the road and he keeps on keeping on. He doesn't want to get involved. Soon after, a Levite comes along, a temple worker, another religious figure. He also sees the man, but what does he do? He too crosses over to the other side of the road. He wants to avoid that messy scene. And then comes a Samaritan, and he also sees the man. But he doesn't cross over to the other side of the road. Instead, Luke says... He came near. And friends, when you come near to a human being, when you come near to a creature, a person made in the image of God, and you begin to see the difficulties that they're going through, you can't help, you can't unsee that anymore. And when you really see what is going on, you don't cross the other side of the road. You're going to be moved somehow to do something. And that's why I believe that any kind of work we do for God, any kind of service we do for God without proximity, without coming near, it's impossible. When there is avoidance crossing the other side of the street, there will never be transformative ministry and service to God. And this man, this man was a Samaritan. And as you know, a Samaritan in Jesus' day, they were despised. They were considered half-breeds. They were religiously and ethnically outcasts. Today we would say those are sketchy kinds of people, right? These people didn't believe in all of the Old Testament. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they didn't accept the kingship of Saul and the king David and the kings, the various kings that came along. They didn't celebrate going down, going up to Jerusalem to... Uh, or going down to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem temple to worship God. In fact, they built their own temple on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And there was this Maccabean king by the name of Hyrcanus who had a problem with that, and he led a militant group of, of soldiers to attack that Samaritan area and destroy the temple. And so we're talking about centuries bad blood between these two groups of people. 
And as far as Jews were concerned, they were half-breed. As far as the Samaritans were concerned, the Jews were, were aberrant in their theology. And they were bullies. But Jesus identifies a Samaritan. He stops. He notices. He sees. And look at his action relative to the so-called religious insiders. Notice, the, the, the lawyer knew the law. He could quote it, but this man was living the law. It was written on his heart. And if you still have your Bibles open, if you would look at verses 33 through 35, and I want you to notice the verbs, notice the action in verses 33 through 35. He's not crossing the road. He came near to him. You see that? He saw him. He was moved with pity. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on his wounds. He put him on his own animal, which means the Samaritan is now walking the remainder of those hazardous miles. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. The Samaritan paid for his expenses. This was on his dime. This victim needed clothes because they stripped away his clothes. He needed food. He needed medical care. He needed a place to sleep. He paid for it all. And then he said to the innkeeper, look, I know there are going to be extra charges. I have to go to another town. I've got business to attend to, but I promise you when I come back, put it on my bill. And when I come back, I'll pay it. I'm good for it. That's what the Samaritan did, friends. He didn't just talk the talk. He didn't just know good definitions about neighbor. He was a neighbor. And then keep your eyes on verse 36 because this is where it gets really, really challenging. Jesus asks his final question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Notice verse 37. The man said, the one. Don't you hate it when people speak about you in the third person? I've got a name. He said, the one. He didn't say the Samaritan. Didn't even want to call the man by his, 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 uh, his origin, the, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go. And that's the word for us today, isn't it? Go and do likewise. It's interesting that this lawyer started out thinking he was going to entrap Jesus. He was going to discredit Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He flipped the tables on the man and exposed his shallowness. The commands of God, wonderful that it's written in a book. The commands of God, wonderful that we have memorized it and we've taught our kids to memorize it. But if that's the only place where the commands of God are lodged and they're not lodged in our hearts, they're not shaping the way we think about others and the way we see the world, then, my friends, our response to the needs around us are going to be tepid. He asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tweaked the question and said, not who is my neighbor, 
But who was a neighbor to this poor man? Jesus changed the question from what kind of person is my neighbor to what kind of person am I? Jesus changes the question from what status of people are worthy of my love to how can I become the kind of person whose compassion disregards status. If you look at the story again, you're going to be hard-pressed to guess the man's race or ethnicity. And I'm glad that's not included because it's immaterial. Doesn't matter. This is a human being. He's bleeding. He's been robbed. His dignity has been ripped from him. You don't stop to check pedigree at that point. You check humanity. You respond to humanity. Our neighbor is not from a certain race. Our neighbor is not from a certain ethnicity. Our neighbor is not just across the fence or from a certain zip code. Our neighbor is anyone, anyone God brings into your purview who is in need of healing. I've been asking myself over and over again, what does this mean for a blessed congregation like the National Presbyterian Church? And one verse that came to me was the verse where Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. So much has been given to us, both in terms of the long, rich legacy of this church, but even in its current, current iteration, who we are, we are a blessed congregation. And I was thinking about that book that was written by Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, wrote a wonderful book that I would encourage everyone in this room to, to borrow or to read or to purchase it. The book is called Generous Justice. And Tim Keller, in his own inimitable style, raises what he calls a sequel to the parable. And this is what he wrote. Imagine that the next day the Samaritan is traveling the road again and he comes across another person bleeding on the side of the road. A few weeks later this happens again and then again. And as it turns out, every time this Samaritan makes a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, he comes across another person lying in the road. And one day he looks up and he sees not one, not two, not three, but he sees hundreds of people lying along the road, beaten and robbed. And Tim Keller asks the question, what should he do? And this, he says, is the question of social transformation. And I want you to think about that. This is the question of social transformation. When you see one person in need, of course you want to help. When you see multitudes in need, of course you want to give and help in whatever way you can to make a difference. But if you are truly to love your neighbor as yourself, you also, we also need to give thought to how can we address what has now become the systemic issues, these underlying conditions, these triggers, these predictors of what's happening in so many places in our country that are causing so many people to fall into situations of dire, dire need. There is a place for us to make sandwiches. There is a place 
for us to go and build homes. There is a place for us to do all these one-off events. But if we really want to make a dent for the kingdom of God, it would be so great for us to step back with maybe a group of other mission partners, a group of other churches, because they're seeing the same things and saying, look, you're also doing this. You're doing the same thing we're doing. But let's ask a different question. What's causing this? What are the gifts that God has given to us as a community where we, if we just stop a minute and imagine the gifts and the abilities that God has given us to employ those gifts in a much more focused way to address the systemic causes. That's the taller mountain to climb, but that's the right mountain to climb. I'm new here, but already I know that God has called National Presbyterian Church to serve the needs of our vulnerable neighbors beyond these walls. I know that. I see the heart of this congregation is to be servants of God. Our summer of serving is one way we're serving our neighbors. And look at some of these images. These are people serving from this church at the Christian Union Mission. Am I saying that right, Donna? Central Union Mission. Central Union Mission. These are people from our church, involved, smiling, not just externally for the camera, but really smiling from the heart. There is something, my friends, you know, there, there, there are so many unhappy people in our world, and one of the sources of unhappiness is self-obsession. One of the reasons why we're discouraged is because we think so much about ourselves, we're worried about ourselves, and the way to joy, the way to freedom is to get outside of ourselves and to serve and you ought to try it sometime. But what would it look like if our congregation were to sit with others and dream even bigger? We want to pull up the root cause off. And so God has given us the opportunity to serve not just the down and outs. We've been called to serve those who are the up and outs. People on the northwest corner of D.C., where everyone looks like they have it together and they really don't. But we're also called to serve people on the southeast, on the southwest. We've been called by God to love this city and to pray for the peace of this city and to ask the question, Lord, what would you have us do? Why do we do that? Because we believe that the words and the commands of God are not just to be written on tablets of stone or written down in books or just memorized. They are words to live by. And the dream that I have for National Presbyterian Church is that everyone here would say, I am a servant of God. I've been called by God. And I'm using the gifts that God has given me to serve in the various ways that God calls me. In the kingdom of God, there is no unemployment. Everyone has an opportunity to serve. So I want to show you this prayer again that I asked you to pray. And I bring it back to you only because there is power. There is power in prayer. And sometimes we do not have because we do not ask. And I'm going to ask you again, if you would set aside time in your small groups and your private time of prayer to pray that by the end of 2023, God willing, and only God can do that, 
through the power of the Holy Spirit that God would bring to National Presbyterian Church an unmistakable increase of people of all ages and stages and colors and backgrounds who are praying for more love. And we need people to be so in love with God and so in love with their community. And that is the fuel for, for being a neighbor. People who are praying for more love, who are coming to Jesus, who are hearing his word, and who are acting on them. And I ask you, my brothers and sisters, as you pray, pray for this. More love, more power, more people coming to Jesus, more people hearing his word, more people acting on the words of Jesus in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the people of God say, Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me then? Let us pray together. Lord God, we, we confess the many times that we've crossed over to the other side we confess the many times that we have tried to justify ourselves. We thank you that you are merciful, you are forgiving, that you will open our eyes, O oh God, you will open our ears, you will open our hearts so that they pulse with compassion for others, so that we serve the way Jesus served. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.